Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, and welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies. I'm your host, Ian Cook, and today we're talking about In Stereotype, South Asia in the Global Literary Imaginary by Munalini Chakravorty. The book is published by Columbia University Press, and Munalini is a professor at the Department of English at the University of Virginia. In Stereotype, in my opinion, is a real masterful account which explores the importance of the stereotype in English-language South Asian literature. The book works through such tropes as the crowd in Salman Rushdie's Midnight Children or slums in Aravind Adhikar's The White Tiger and many different other um, stereotypes in many different books. And I think the focus on the stereotype and its enticing and explanatory power really casts fresh light on some of the most important contemporary works in South Asian literature. Moreover, the book is a real pleasurable and challenging read. I had the pleasure of speaking with Munalini just a few moments before. Okay, so without any further ado, it gives me great pleasure to welcome Munalini to the show. Thanks a lot for your wonderful book, and thanks so much for coming on New Books in South Asian Studies. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Wonderful. So before we talk about um, your book, I was wondering, could you first please tell us a little bit about your academic background? Um, well, I began by uh, studying literature and biology, actually, um, as an undergraduate. And in my literary studies um, there, I focused on um, indigenous um, literatures, uh, Native American literatures, but I ended up writing a thesis on uh, Salman Rushdie. From there, I went on to graduate school uh, at the University of California at Irvine uh, in what we may call the heyday or the waning heyday of uh, deconstruction and uh, continental theory in general. Um, And um, in graduate school, I became interested in largely philosophical questions uh, to do with the ethics and aesthetics of representation um, in modernity. So Uh, Both ethical and aesthetic judgments, of course, you know, have to do with the cultivation of values, conformist normative social values, as well as recalcitrant ones. Um, Particularly in the post-colonial context here, I was focused on uh, the development and dissemination of the colonial, anti-colonial and post-colonial Anglophone novel. And it seemed to me that um, the problems that emerged um, in a post-colonial um, discourse of hybridity, mimicry, orientalism of the stereotype, and indeed of a certain you know, dialectics um, of the self and other were the quintessential problems of uh, incommensurable uh, forms of modernity itself, if we may call it that. Um, such that um, modernity presented itself uh, through contradictions uh, that had to do with uh, non-Western cultural forms and their articulation within Western colonial political forms and scripts. Um, So um, uh, with regard uh, to post-colonial novels, uh, the period of decolonization and its aftermath um, uh, uh, became crucial Uh, for how these questions uh, uh, contemplating the relevance of the novel as an adequate 
vehicle through which to engage the terms of post-colonial societies were to be negotiated, whether uh, these novels made difference uh, between the global north and south legible, um, or did they really uh, represent a kind of alignment uh, with certain dominant European ideas of civility, civil society, uh, liberal progress and development, and so forth. Um, so, which is why, you know, the book uh, ends up looking at uh, the Anglophone novel um, as the crux of an important uh, problem of a certain kind of disjuncture, how to convey uh, the oppositional revolutionary energies of an anti-colonial uh, moment, uh, largely after the uh, Second World War, um, and the more assimilative uh, postures that came afterwards uh, with the post-colonial um, nations um, articulating a kind of conversion uh, to a more global order where a certain kind of normative subjects, you know, the political uh, subject of the state or the economic subject of capital or the cultural subject of the nation um, uh, became a kind of site uh, of uh, contestation uh, in terms of representation itself. Uh, so, you know, long question, um, this is a long answer to the question, but this is really how I came to think about uh, these issues in the context of this book. Wonderful. Thank you so much for that. Um, I was uh, thinking, as I was reading your book, I always struggle to come up with the first question for these interviews because sometimes it's hard to, to capture what the book's central idea is in, in, in one question. But in this case, you provide the question in the title of your first chapter, which is, why the stereotype and why South Asia? So these are my first two questions to you about the book. Very good. Um, so the book actually begins with um, a quotation from Gayatri Spivak um, uh, in uh, from her book, uh, Other Asias. And it's a, just a sort of snippet uh, where she says, I had to think somehow of this phantasmatic Asia, which mediated the stereotype of myself. Um, and of course, her work, along with the work of Homi Baba and the stereotype, became very energi energizing for me because this quote that I just uh, cited uh, captures a kind of double valence of the stereotype that I wanted to think through, um, that the stereotype is at once a kind of phantasm, uh, inheres a kind of libidinal investment in an image of authenticity for the subject um, that has wide cultural circulation and a certain kind of fetish value and that it is also a, uh, performs a kind of a mediating function uh, in uh, especially in the post-colonial context in relations between the east and west between uh, more, uh, modern and counter-modern, um, uh, between reality and fantasy, and also between reader and text, ultimately. Um, so I was uh, uh, trying to think about this idea of the stereotype that appears so much more supple and fungible than conventional ideas of stereotypes, um, cognitive ones, especially even semiotic notions um, of the stereotype as iterative but fixed um, or congealed, you know, ideas or biases about certain groups. And I wanted to probe this doubleness uh, or tension uh, in the context of contemporary South Asian uh, fiction in particular. 
Um, uh, the second impulse uh, to study the stereotype came uh, from Edward Said's inspiring work and in foundational work uh, for thinking about the construction of knowledge between the Occident and the East um, and the Orient. And um, of course, Said, uh, you know, identified the stereotype as one of the lenses of disciplinary investment in the Orient uh, for the Occident. And I wanted to investigate this further in the moment that we are in now, not in the uh, earlier centuries, but in the kind of worlding that happens, say, after 1989 and the fall of the Berlin Wall and the kind of uh, emergence of a new, we might think, uh, uh, global uh, culture um, in certain ways. Um, and then the second question, uh, why, this, why South Asia? I think partly that has to do with my own uh, training uh, in it. Uh, but I also think there is a reason um, uh, to study South Asian fiction, particularly Anglophone fiction, because um, it is, um, uh, sorry, I'm not sure the Skype connection. Let me just yes. see. Okay. Um, um, the amazing uh, success that the English novel from India has enjoyed uh, globally. Um, you know, and this is, of course, connected to the question of language uh, itself, uh, specifically of English's dominant in uh, dominance in um, what we might uh, call after Pascal uh, Casanova. Um, the World Republic of Letters um, and uh, the sort of unparalleled uh, global purchase of English. Um, in the first chapter of the book, the introduction, I actually look at Gandhi and how he responded to the sort of pressure of English uh, in India uh, in the anti-colonial moment as the lingua franca of a certain kind of emerging um, uh, uh, liberal anti-colonial elite. And uh, it was very interesting to me that he thought that English still should be the imperial ambassadorial language of the world for India, even as he was arguing for, um, the estab uh, for establishing Hindi as the national language. Um, so I think South Asia is in a unique place. Uh, there are so many writers uh, writing the kind of productivity of the novel uh, in English from South Asia has been immense. And so I think um, uh, the, uh, the, the, uh, the impetus for me to uh, sort of focus on South Asia uh, in this context um, was relevant. Um, I'm also, of course, in, interested in the relationship between literary stereotypes and the ideas of uh, collectivism that change in the English novel from South Asia from its earlier incarnations that were far more individualized uh, so that you had stereotypes of the lascivious Indian or the licentious Indian or the effeminate Indian that were uh, response, resp in, uh, responsive to, I think, uh, colonial problems uh, of uh, how uh, certain kinds of um, uh, recalcitrant colonialities uh, should be governed. And these change quite a bit, and I'm more interested in the present book in um, aggregate stereotypes, not so much in individuals, and in thinking about how those have, uh, those individual earlier stereotypes have um, transformed into um, or accreted uh, to become collective ones that um, in fact uh, encompass uh, sort of an entire swath of the region, you know, so the newer stereotypes that the book looks at of over uh, overcrowding, slums, terror, 
uh, genocide. Um, these have more to do with a kind of geopolitics than uh, than uh, the formation or negotiation of particular uh, individuated uh, subjects. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for that. So now let's talk about the, the individual chapters themselves. The first stereotype that you discuss in depth is that of overpopulation and crowds, as you, as you mentioned these two before. And especially you look at how they're used in uh, Salman Rushdie's novel, Midnight's Children. So I'm wondering what purpose do the unruly hordes and the mobs play in Rushdie's novel? Um, yes, um, I think, you know, uh, Midnight's Children, of course, uh, sort of changed the conversation about novels from India. Uh, generically, um, uh, there were novels, um, many, many English novels earlier on uh, that uh, focused on uh, uh, a sort of uh, anti-colonial resistance movements. Um, and also, uh, you know, I'm thinking of R.K. Narayan, Muk, uh, Raj Anand, and also of uh, the likes of Anita Desai, uh, who, uh, uh, who uh, uh, played with form more interestingly in terms of uh, of capturing certain kinds of modernist anxieties. Uh, but uh, with uh, the genre of magical realism, I do think Rajdi invented something um, uh, of a kind of newness and presented um, presented a, a kind of collo collective um, uh, idea of uh, the Indian subcontinent that hadn't been presented as such in, in, before. Um, the other reason I looked at Midnight's Children again after all this time is because um, um, the conversation around Rushdie had changed after 1988, and so much has been written about the satanic verses and the fatwa, uh, but I thought Midnight's Children was doing something quite important uh, in terms of negotiating certain anxieties um, over, um, over the future of the post-colony, uh, whether to think of it in a certain kind of uh, uh, poly as a certain kind of polyphonic uh, experience um, that was in tension in that novel against the uh, overdetermined emergence of Salim Sinai, you know, the protagonist, uh, highly individuated, educated, liberal, etc. Um, and uh, finally, I wanted to also consider how uh, earlier kinds of um, stereotypes, or really in stereotypes you might think of, uh, of the dirty, disorderly um, mobs uh, in India were being reworked re in Midnight's Children um, to, to, um, toward uh, a kind of new idea of a kind of imminent uh, multitude, you know, and this uh, I read Hart and Negri alongside uh, the notion or representation of the multitude in Rushdie's book. Um, and what I found, um, or at least I argue, is that at the heart of this notion of an imminent uh, multitude is the problem of a kind of heteronormative, um, fecund uh, public, and as well as a fecund kind of prose. And I think um, uh, in uh, Midnight's Children, the multitude is um, both aligned uh, with a kind of consumptive 
liberal idea of the state, and this is captured by sort of um, the uh, uh, last half of the book, uh, where um, you, you know Rajdi narrates or represents yeah, the emergency uh, uh, Indira Gandhi's uh, moment, and also a kind of shadow utopia that is uh, more submerged, uh, but nevertheless represented by what we might call uh, fuzzy collectives, you know, of queers. Uh, uh, squatters, women, um, these collectives that are not legible in the kind of um, uh, future that the post-colony heralds for itself in that book. Um, so in the end, I think what I ended up um, with was that population stereotypes in Midnight's Children are recast as mobile, resilient, um, and uh, in some way dictatorial, but at the same time, uh, there is a notion, uh, or at least there is the idea there presented for the reader that there's other things happening in India that um, uh, that uh, don't um, uh, get recognized uh, in much the same ways. Um, so yeah, um, that's why I wanted to look at Midnight's Children in the first chapter. I think it sets the stage for later conversations in the book. Yes, totally. I, I I agree with that, and I'm and I'm glad the uh, and I'm and I'm glad you did start with that. It's probably the first book about India which I read as a teenager in northern in England years and years ago, and totally confused me at the time. And uh, <laughs> something to reread now. Yeah, I'm yes. now I'm more knowledgeable. Um, so uh, and, yeah, and a wonderful book, of course. So my next question is about slums, because you know, slums and slum life, slum life have long been present in representations of South Asia. But I suppose recently they've been really put more centrally on the, on the global stage with the success of things like Slumdog Millionaire and Aravind Adigar's The White Tiger. So I was wondering, how does the slums, we say the dual nature, both of a, both as a place of abject poverty and in a place of magical community, how does this dual nature unfold in these two different works? Um, yeah, um, you know, the as you say, the slum has been a kind of um, old um, uh, trope within uh, South Asian fiction. And here I'm thinking about uh, Catherine Mayo's Mother India, um, Mother, uh, Catherine Mayo's Mother India, um, Kipling's uh, City of Dreadful Night, even something like, uh, you know, E.M. Forster's Passage to India. Um, but uh, what I uh, am struck by is the sort of re-emergence um, in global metropolitan theory of uh, slums in articulating particular problems of the North versus the South uh, divide. Um, of course, Mike Davis's uh, Planet of Slums and Ananya Roy's work um, on urban India have been very influential in this regard. Um, so um, the chapter actually does consider so much the historical uh, conditions of slum life in India, but looks uh, instead as uh, at slums as a kind of um, very vital metaphor that emerges in uh, texts such as um, White Tiger or in films like uh, Slum Dog Millionaire. There's a whole lot of other books now, of course, Catherine Boo, a lot of them uh, anthropological invent. Um, uh, so slums uh, that em uh, slums emerge uh, sort of as a metaphorical but dense site uh, of exchange for thinking or at least interpolating readers uh, to consider their ethical responses to other kinds of stereotypes, you know, that are associated uh, so readily with uh, slum life, um, those of hunger, overcrowding um, uh, that I examined in the previous chapter, 
uh, criminality, and even notions of uneven um, development or freedom. Um, and what I propose is that these texts, you know, um, uh, operate uh, by thinking through the informal economies of slum life, uh, through what uh, I've called, uh, as you mentioned this in your question, slum magic, you know, where um, a lot of the characters in these films, uh, in the film or the book, are endowed with um, uh, fantastic, inventive, um, or judagu uh, qualities, you know, they are fantastically industrious, um, they are very good at what might be thought of as ways of uh, shaping cunning uh, life, uh, so that uh, piracy, stealth work, um, such um, almost quasi-criminal or illegal forms of uh, life become their, um, their uh, mode of existence. And I was interested in the question, what happens when certain kinds of readers, spectators uh, abroad or not affected as much by, uh, of, by daily contact with slum life, um, engage these ideas of cunningness? You know, what kind of um, uh, stereotype does it for, firm up? about um, the acquisitive nature of uh, South Asian um, uh, po populations um, and what, I, what kind of a rise does it give to a notion of uh, poverty tourism that is a kind of literary poverty tourism, not that you, um, um, sometimes people are motivated to go into slums as a result, but uh, the, uh, the book or the film itself uh, serving a, a kind of function or pleasure uh, for uh, for the elite uh, uh, consumer in a way that uh, reaffirms their ideas of acquisitiveness and liberal um, inventiveness, you know, even in people who are so disenfranchised um, uh, from, uh, from uh, regular economies. Um, so yeah, that was uh, sort of the motivation uh, for thinking about the dual uh, sort of tracks um, uh, of slum. Uh, Islam representation. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. The next uh, book we'll discuss is a is a book I've 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 never read, but now I really want to after 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 reading your chapter. And this is uh, Michael uh, on the on that cheese book, uh, Anil's Ghost. And uh, this is the this is the fourth chapter now. And I was wondering, my question here is related to how does death in a post-colonial novel such as this ethically implicate us as readers in the deaths of others who are who are elsewhere. Very good. I think you should read this book. It's okay. uh, probably my favorite book uh, of all the ones I've written on. Um, and um, yeah, so, you know, Ondache, when he was asked about um, whether uh, he feels a certain kind of different responsibility as a writer living in Canada to um, uh, portray Sri Lanka in a particular way, uh, he told um, uh, the story uh, of him reading another story called The King and the Corpse. Um, and that uh, what he narrates there is uh, this uh, sort of um, North Indian, I, I guess, uh, um, uh, 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 short story that he came across where a king, I guess, who has killed someone uh, and buries the corpse and then every um, night wakes up with the having had this kind of nightmarish dream that haunts him. Um, the dream being that he has the the corpse uh, slung around his neck. Um, so I think that's such a provocative uh, story because it 
sort of gets to a lot of the concerns of Anil's host, um, the notion of sovereignty. What do you uh, do uh, uh, when you have uh, power over life and death uh, over others? Uh, and also how does uh, 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 the death of the other affect you? Um, in the context of the novel, of course, Ondache, I think, um, uh, negotiates these questions in terms of a genocide or civil war in uh, Sri Lanka. And uh, really perhaps um, uh, discovers or reveals a kind of unique uh, poetics that um, uh, uh, I have called uh, uh, poetics of the subaltern melancholia. Um, um, so uh, uh, let me just talk a little, back up a little and say something about sort of this meditation on death and loss um, in other worlds. Um, you know, Ashil Membe has recently written about um, um, necropolitics and the kind of politics of negotiating um, uh, uh, what he calls death worlds, um, these place, spaces of uh, global genocide. Um, and this is a much older conversation. Uh, Derrida's uh, Gift of Death uh, tries to think about the sublime experience of, um, uh, of individuals experiencing um, the death of others. Um, and um, Derrida's conclusion, of course, is a very different one from someone like Hegel's, who thought it was impossible, right, for the for anyone to really uh, experience the death of others. And Derrida makes a much more, I think, uh, almost a psychoanalytic point um, that, in fact, that is all the death we experience. Um, so uh, for this chapter, I wanted to think through some of these problems and um, Especially because the chapter is about unsettling, you know, a certain kind of um, the chapter, but also on Dache's novel is about unsettling a certain kind of uh, juridical, legal, um, human rights framework for thinking about violence um, in South Asia. And um, uh, Yasmin, uh, Yasmin Siddiqui has a beautiful um, uh, chapter in her book, Anxieties of Empire, uh, on just this problem of how the detective uh, novel is undone uh, in, uh, in Ondache's work by something uh, else that takes its place. And in the uh, uh, in Anil's Coast, you get these kinds of multiple focalizations where on the one hand, you have the protagonist Anil, a kind of repatriated diasporic subject um, working for a human rights organization. She's also a forensic scientist who believes in a certain kind of scientificity and instrumental truth. Uh, returning to the country to make a case for um, illegal uh, governmental um, executions and assassinations, but uh, the novel actually moves away from uh, Anil's uh, focal point quite a bit and gives us a, a, a sort of a, what I might think of as um, a, a, a formal play um, that uh, changes uh, or forces or perhaps uh, makes uh, the problem of death much more complex than it appears um, in any kind of human rights framework. Um, so, for example, you have Ondache, um, uh, you know, incorporating notions of Zen Buddhism, uh, but also thinking through uh, ideas of uh, piety and of the Pieta, a certain kind of uh, affective movement towards 
uh, others who have borne a loss and why that loss uh, should become an ethical problem for the reader. So the text opens itself in gaps to the reader and um, leaves certain choices, ethical choices, I think, uh, for the reader to make. Uh, that is about uh, interpreting that stereotype of the dead other in one way or the other. Um, uh, yeah, so that uh, I think is why um, that was my favorite book, actually. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you for that. Now, um, South Asian stereotypes, of course, travel, and uh, we have this discussion of uh, Monica, Monica Lee's Brick Lane. So I was wondering what happens to the South Asian stereotype when it unfolds in a book like this? Um, yeah, with uh, Brick Lane, I, did, I wanted to think about, because so many are of um, South Asian, uh, contemporary South Asian, Anglophone novels are also produced uh, and written in, in the diaspora by diasporic writers who nevertheless still identify quite um, uh, strongly with uh, South Asia, uh, at least in uh, its um, cultural terms. Um, I wanted to think about what Brick Lane is doing and the kind of uh, crisis of authenticity um, it seeks to represent uh, for both um, migrants and for British uh, Britishness um, and the ways in which it sort of disrupts ideas um, of a kind of pristine West um, unaffected by its colonial history. Um, so the chapter actually considers um, the controversy over Brick Lane's publication because it was not well received um, by the community um, in Brick Lane, and there was this sort of uh, furor over whether uh, Monica Ali, a second generation, half uh, a Bangladeshi a woman, could authentically represent Bangladeshis who were first generation in her uh, in in um, England. Um, so I think that chapter really thinks through what, uh, after Sarah Soleri, we might call the dislocated um, idiom of migrancy, um, that. Uh, reflects uh, both the idea of the West um, and the way that the West perceives itself to itself, and also um, uh, a sort of um, contemplates stereotypes um, that the West, uh, or at least in the Anglophone context, has of uh, the non-Anglophone um, uh, social life elsewhere. So for example, in that book, what is very curious is that Nazneen, the protagonist's sister, Hasina, writes her these letters um, ostensibly from Bangladesh, ostensibly in Bengali, but um, whereas neither the protagonist, Nazneen, nor, nor her sister are fluent in English, um, the letters in the English novel are represented through this kind of very odd, um, almost um, jarring uh, uh, broken English. And uh, that's sort of, uh, I, I'm not sure I would have written the chapter in the way, um, or at least assessed it in the way that I have. But at the moment when I was writing, it sort of indicated to me the intractability of um, the, um, the English novel when it comes to really including with itself, uh, within itself, um, linguistic and uh, cultural registers that are really radically other, um, um, other to the Anglophone context. Um, so yeah, so the uh, chapter ultimately looks at the stereotype um, uh, of the migrant, um, uh, both uh, the assimilable uh, migrant and the unassimilated, inassimilable.
um, uh, the novel Brick Lane, but also within uh, metropolitan British uh, society um, uh, to think about, um, you know, ideas of um, labor, um, terror, um, all the ways in which the West sees itself needing to cut off from the rest of the world, but also, uh, in fact, uh, uh, you know, uh, where, where these very, very um, uh, conditions uh, are most often produced by the kinds of contradictions within the metropolitan West now. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. Um, so the last, uh, the last chapter of the book is about transnationalism, specifically those that um, that come through in Moshin Hamid's uh, book, The Reluctant Fundamentalist, and also Chetan Bagat's One Night at the Call Centre. So could you please tell us a little bit about how transnational and how the freedom emerge in these novels? Yeah, um, the reason I just juxtapose these two is uh, because I really wanted to consider maybe this is the shortest chapter. So if I had had more time, uh, I would have done a more uh, lengthy study of uh, two different kinds of genres and uh, narrative genres uh, that seem emergent uh, at the moment uh, from South Asia. Uh, one we might call novels that engage terror and terrorism in some way as, as their kind of uh, formative uh, um, idea uh, of uh, how South Asia is negotiating its relation uh, to the West and uh, as well um, uh, perhaps uh, in a lesser way, uh, calls the uh, call center genre, or at least uh, novels um, uh, that uh, are about labor, about uh, how, uh, work, um, and this uh, we could also think of as the outsourcing uh, genre. Uh, what I think these two novels uh, do uh, are open two different affective uh, registers. You know, the one with uh, uh, reluctant fundamentalist is obviously very much about thinking about um, uh, the figure of rage and revenge, the aftermath of 9-11, the spectacle of the terrorist in our, uh, the, the spectacle of 9-11, but also the sort of um, insidiousness of uh, a kind of terrorist from uh, South Asia, uh, in our midst and so forth. And then Chetan Bhagat's um, uh, One Night at the Call Center, which is much more pulpy uh, as a book, uh, uh, thinks through the question of hard work and conformity, uh, what happens when you have these kinds of um, night shifters who are willing to uh, service a certain kind of uh, econo economy um, that is already in place. And I think both of these stereotypes ultimately have very important uh, things to say about um, how um, freedom um, itself is being uh, thought uh, as a kind of zero-sum game um, uh, where you either have to um, uh, decide that freedom uh, um, uh, is a certain form of coercion, whether of labor uh, or or uh, or an expression of free will, um, and uh, uh, and these are questions that are very central to thinking about uh, the uh, ideas of uh, the uh, the uh, liberal subject, and I think both of these novels um, attempt to, in some way. Uh, approach that difference between free will and coercion as the kind of uh, uh, kind of bottom line of how we uh, need to uh, 
contemplate, you know, freedom uh, as such. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for that. Now, I've um, shot through this book quite quickly with my questions, as is always the case uh, on this podcast, and we have such rich material. So I was wondering, is there anything that I've missed that you'd like to highlight for those who've not yet had the chance to read the book? Um, well, you know, maybe I, I think the... Uh, about um, what I found uh, or what I took away from having sort of studied uh, stereotypes and the ways in which they have been dismissed as sort of stultified, um, banal, cliche, um, uh, cliched uh, forms, um, you know, uh, stultifying of language as well, um, is that uh, actually they're very interesting quilting points, mimetic quilting points, you know, which uh, sort of disclose a kind of instability of mimesis itself um, that is very generative for uh, thinking about uh, the role of fiction, the relationship that readers cultivate uh, to literature. And um, in a certain of the cases that I've examined, how uh, stereotypes and their mimetic um, kind of um, uh, entry points uh, produce, uh, reveal a sort of failure of uh, mimesis, you know, to produce uh, a responsive uh, kind of a reader uh, in the way that the text at least uh, wants to script it. Um, so I think, you know, there, so no, I mean, there's, I don't have much else to say except that perhaps the big point to take away is that this is a kind of rewriting of Auerbach's um, notion of mimesis uh, to think of uh, stereotypes as representing a kind of beleaguered uh, nature of a mimesis that moves between a kind of stilted realism and uh, deploys an anxious uh, fantasy that readers bring to fiction often. Um, and also uh, to rethink the genre of global uh, of the global novel itself as uh, both forwarding a fiction of divided worlds, even as it uh, pretends or often aspires to um, uh, to uh, end uh, these kinds of divisions. Um, lastly, you know, there's a little um, concluding section where I touch upon some of the kind of uh, problems of reading that reading uh, stereotypes present. And this is a rich conversation that is happening at the moment in terms of contemporary literature, uh, the, the, the kind of um, disagreements and debates over whether slow reading, distant reading, um, uh, or a certain uh, notion of world literature or untranslatability in world literature is uh, is um, the most um, kind of urgent uh, way in which to think about a whole uh, body of uh, works that we are now teaching, that people are consuming, that are being written, where prizes are, that are winning prizes. Um, so I think maybe if um, anything that got left out, it's probably this, that um, uh, people should look at the conclude, uh, sort of the con epilogue, uh, uh, the, the, the end section uh, of the book, the uh, epilogue. Wonderful. Thank you so much for that. So uh, this book is now out. So this is now pushed away from you. And I was wondering what then are your current and, and future projects? Well, um, I have um, several different ideas. I, I'm very interested in several things. I don't know which direction I'm going to go. I'm co-authoring um, a biography of Freddie Mercury that I'm very excited about that talks uh, about sort of uh, Mercury as the um, uh, the uh, 
Thatcherite uh, in in the in his Thatcherite in the Thatcherite uh, England uh, and the kind of performance of uh, a glamour uh, rock that was both excessive and entirely conformist uh, uh, during his time. Um, and uh, also of Mercury as a kind of South Asian artist, um, queer, passing, racially, sexually. So I'm very excited about that book. I think that probably will be done soon or far uh, first. Um, but um, I'm um, also um, interested in two other things um, that I have worked on a little bit. Uh, one is a book on uh, hunger in the post-World uh, uh, War II moment and the politics uh, and representational politics of altruism um, that attached to it uh, in the context of South Asia, but also of Africa. Um, and uh, and uh, and uh, the next one is um, about the dystopian novel, um, and I think that's the big dominant emerging genre of um, uh, of English uh, writing now, um, the dystopian post-apocalyptic novel, and the ways in which it negotiates older questions of magic and magicality and the occult and all of these other things that um, have uh, been uh, sort of side uh, uh, in the interest of um, more kind of rational ways of thinking about uh, the world. Um, so yeah, those are the projects uh, right now that uh, are uh, preoccupying me. Wow, wonderful. They, they all sound fascinating and all very different as well. So I guess you'll be very busy for, yes. for years to come <laughs> with these. But wonderful. There's nothing much more for me to do apart from to thank you again for, for coming on the podcast. I really enjoyed reading your book. I'd like to recommend it to everyone who's listening at home. So, um, yeah, thanks a lot for coming on and thanks again for your wonderful book. Thank you for having me. This was wonderful. Thanks so much for downloading the new books in South Asian Studies podcast. I've been your host, Ian Cook, and today we've been talking about In Stereotype by Munalini Chakravorty. This really was a great book, and I hope you've enjoyed listening to our conversation. I know certainly I enjoyed talking with Munalini, and I hope you download the podcast again next time. Ta-ra!